0: If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Ephesians 6. Counting today, will be here seven weeks. So I think Jared's already told you that he loves it. If you follow him, if you want to know where he is preaching his lonely message, I can give it to you. You probably can hear it four or five times. Or you can get the DVD or just skip the one he's doing, whatever. really doesn't matter to me. But we really uh, are looking forward to talking about the armor of God, Ephesians 6. Let's pray. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, as we handle biblical truth, we are so reminded that you tell us that we are not to hear only but do as well. In fact, you tell us to whom much is given, much more is expected in Luke 12. And so each time we open your word, we are more culpable before you. Always culpable before you, but even more so. And so, Father, we don't want just to hear about the armor, we want to pray it on a regular basis, a daily basis, asking you to help us with truth and righteousness and in the word, and with faith. And we want to understand all the aspects of the gospel and tie it together in prayer. And so, Father, speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, and may we live out the word. For your glory, our benefit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I don't know if you know who John Sedgwick is. He was a major general, that means he has two stars. He was the highest ranking general on the Union, the northern side, to be shot and killed during the Civil War, 1860 to 1864 5. This particular man was actually shot five times. The first time he was shot was in the seven-day battle. Then at ant you may recognize that as the bloodiest day in American history. 3,000 died, but because of wounds, probably 8,000 died in that single battle. And ant he was shot in the hand, in the shoulder, and the leg. So to this point, he's been shot four times. And now he's at the courthouse in Virginia. Another battle is about to ensue. His Union army is probing the rebels, the Reb army, the Confederate army of the South. He's overseeing the artillery pieces. There are bullets whizzing by him, and he ignores it. The men with him hit the ground. They hear the whistling, and they know bullets are coming. He looks at his men and said, Boys, I'm ashamed of you. They couldn't hit an elephant from a thousand yards. Stand up, do your job, have a little courage. One of the individuals says, General, I believe in in dodging bullets. I've lived to the point that I've lived because I've dodged bullets. I've hit pay dirt when they're whistling by. He laughed and said, well, when you're courageous enough, go ahead and get up and go back to work. All the while, sharpshooters are honing in on the general. A thousand yards is unthinkable in their day. Quite hittable today. With a Whitworth rifle, a sharp shooter hits him. It's his fifth wound. This one is in the forehead. He never regains consciousness. And at age 50, John Sedgwick dies. And I think to myself, what are you thinking? You have seen reasonable men Courageous men in battle hit pay dirt because they hear the whistling. It's not courageous, it's stupid. If the enemy are taking shots at you and you're not dodging it, it's stupid if you know that you are the target and you're doing nothing about it. And I want to apply that stupidity to the fact that the Bible says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. But our battle is against the principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. We've been warned. We've been told. The Bible tells us that there is an unseen spiritual battle by Satan, by the demonic, aimed at us. And he's got a lot better aim than a thousand years with a Whitworth rifle. And we're the target. And I want to think about that very strategically over the next two months. Let me read Ephesians 6, verse 12. It says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, as I look at the text, it makes a blanket statement that our battle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our primary foe, our primary battle, is not against other fellow humans. It's against what's going on around us. It's against Satan. It's against his minions. It's against those who desire Spiritually to destroy us, to lead us astray, to leave us inept, inert, worthless for the kingdom. That's where our battle lies. Now we are sophisticated enough to realize that some of the ways, the means of Satan is also to use the media, it's to use woke corporations, it's to use The professional sport world. We saw a picture of it in Milwaukee just at halftime this last week, where a professional sports team did something unthinkable with children in the audience, a tool of Satan. We understand that Satan is using such tools, but I've got to step back and I've got to ask myself balancing all of scripture. Am I far more concerned with my battle against flesh and blood than against the principalities and powers and forces all around us in this dark world? Where is my focus? It's not that I ignore the one and only focus on the other because there is an intermingling going on. But the Bible tells us where my primary, where your primary focus ought to be. And that is with the spiritual realm. In fact, I want to go one step further. How do we expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers? There's no mystery in that. We were all them. If we've believed Christ now, we know unbelievers act like unbelievers. No mystery there. If we want to win our world... If we want God to impact our world, if we want our world to change, it starts with us. Not with the unbelieving world. Yes, we want them to come to Christ, but it starts with us. What does 2 Chronicles seven fourteen say? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. If we will get right with the Lord, then he will hear us, then he will heal us, then he will heal our land. And so the primary battle is not against flesh and blood, and the primary battle is the spiritual realm around us and what we as Christ followers are living out for the kingdom. That's where the battle is going to be won, and that's where the battle is going to be lost. It is about us living for the kingdom empowered by God's spirit, living in such a way with the spiritual warfare on, the the spiritual armor on, that we can stand against the wiles of Satan and his minions. Let me pick up in our text. I want to read Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. As you and I begin a study over the next six weeks, or seven if you count today, we're going to be interacting one by one with the pieces, the gifts from God, the armor of God that he desires in prayer that we ask for on a regular, perhaps a daily basis. And it starts with a belt of truth. In other words, in the economy of God, there are no white lies. There are no polite lies. There are no gray lies. In the economy of God, we ought to be purveyors of truth. And it's more than just telling truth, it's what we pass on. For instance, if you have a YouTube video, or you have a podcast, and it happens to take the position you take, and you pass it on, but you don't fact check. And you, you notice maybe it's not using the word of God correctly or not that well, but it makes the right conclusions, and you pass it on, and you don't give the caveat that this isn't fully true. Then we are not purveyors of truth. This made God's top 10, did it not? Exodus 20 verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against one another. We bear false witness when we read and listen to heresy seekers who are not all that steeped in scripture. And they don't treat it accurately, but they come to the conclusion we like. And so we pass it on and we ruin reputations. God says that that's not us we put on the belt of truth. It doesn't only make God's top 10 in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. God narrows his list down to seven, right? Proverbs 6, there are six things I hate, seven that are an abomination to the Lord. A lying tongue. Now I wonder what would happen this morning if we didn't have context and we had said, take out a piece of paper and write down seven things that are an abomination to the Lord, I wonder how many of us would have included white lies, polite lies, gray lies, little lies. Maybe not many of us. And yet in John chapter 8, 44, we're told that every lie is the native tongue of Satan himself. Allow me to read that to us. John 8, the 44th verse, it says this. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, not you, those in traditions. (laughs) You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Actually, the text is the father of all lies. To all of this, the Bible says, gird up your loins with a belt of truth. In other words, all of your being, all of my being, ought to be about telling the truth. Not shading the truth, not telling a half truth to protect us from the half that we're not proud of. We tell the truth. I think of Titus 1 verse 2. It says God is an unlying God. God is not capable of lying. He will not lie. What he says is true. It's not only true some of the time, it's true all of the time. From eternity past to eternity present, God is a purveyor of truth. And we are to be imitators of God. But we go on. It's not just the belt of truth. Verse 14 says, we put on the breastplate of righteousness The word for breastplate is thraka. It referred to this plate that would cover vital organs because much of the battle was hand-to-hand and you would take the short sword and you would go at it and you would need this breastplate because inevitably in a battle of hand-to-hand when everybody has a short sword, everyone's going to be stabbed and you can't be stabbed in vital organs. And so we're told to put on the breastplate of righteousness the breastplate of righteousness is not only speaking the truth, but with the right attitude and the right motive. And it's living out the truth and avoiding those things that we ought not do. All of this is part of this idea of righteousness. It goes like this. Maybe we're on the web and we're on a morally neutral site. And suddenly a scantily clad individual is part of that site. It's clickbait. And we've got to decide, are we going to put up the armor of God? Are we going to pray? Are we going to cite some scripture, the sword of the Spirit? Are we going to live out our faith, the shield of faith? Or are we going to click? Or maybe we're with some friends and they're tossing back a few too many. And we say, no, no, that will not be me. This is the temple of the living God. And I am to be in control of this temple At all times. Or maybe it's a critical spirit. Or maybe we're with a girlfriend or a boyfriend. And we're alone and there's temptation. And we say no. I will live out righteous. Living. I will put on the armor of God. I will put on the breastplate of righteousness. Because I am going to live for the Lord. How can I ask God to bless my relationship when I'm not doing what God has called me to do. And so we live out the breastplate of righteousness. We don't allow our lips to slander and gossip and be a part of vulgar language. We put on the breastplate of righteousness. We live out Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read this text a little bit later in a, a funeral service. But Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand throne of the Father. How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? It tells us that we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It says that we cast aside the sin that so easily clings to us. We run the race with endurance, the race that God has set before us. That's how you and I put on and live out the breastplate of righteousness. But this isn't bare-knuckle Christianity. Christianity. Bare-knuckle Christianity is us against the world. Bare-knuckle Christianity is I've got to put forth all my effort and then maybe, maybe, not likely, I'm going to succeed. We've all been there. We've all done it. It doesn't work very well. The Christian walk is much broader, much more sophisticated than that. First, we need the family of God. We need to regularly be in Bible study. We need to regularly be in corporate worship. The only organization that God takes credit for, he designed, he calls it his bride, is the church. And we've got to be a part of the church on a regular basis. And from the church, we build accountability. And from the words of scripture, we build some wise fences in our lives. And we memorize the word of God in those areas of temptation which differ from every one of us. And in those moments we cite it. And each day we ask God to put on the armor and to give us the breastplate of righteousness. And to allow us to be in the sword, the word, and to build faith and then we're prayer individuals for one another and for ourselves asking God to do what only God can do. We don't become lax because we have a battle, a spiritual battle against not flesh and blood, but against the demonic powers, the forces of evil in this dark world. I think of the marginal line. If you're... Uh, History buff, you know, in the 1930s, France built the Maginot Line. Really nothing like it in all of history. An engineering marvel of futility. Several hundred miles along the northeastern border. All of the border between them and Germany, they could see that Germany was starting to become once again hostile. And so they went beyond that, they went to Luxembourg and up to Belgium, but the the force of the marginal line was several hundred miles between France and Germany. If you know anything about it, they built it out of concrete, the best of their day. They had well over 100 forts, about 150 forts, 95 major and a little over 50 minor forts along the entire way. They put in 252 major guns. They ran an underground railroad several hundred miles so they could move soldiers and armament back and forth. The soldiers slept and ate in air conditioning in the 1930s. And when the German Wehrmacht, the German army attacked France, They didn't do a frontal attack. They went up around Belgium. They went through the Ardennes forest, which France wrongly thought was impenetrable. They did an end around. France capitulated and France surrendered. Why? Because they thought that if they just did one thing, there would always be a frontal attack and it would be over. That's the way to lose. Not only in flesh and blood battle, but in spiritual battle. We put on all the pieces of armor. We need the body of Christ. We need accountability. We need our own efforts. We need to put up safeguards. We need verses of scripture to cite during times of temptation. We need accountability. If we want victory in our lives, That's the cost, and that's the strategy, divine strategy given to us by God. Well, the next piece of armor is the gospel. Now, that might be simple, and we might say we can pass by it, but I don't think so quick. Of course, the gospel is salvation by faith in Christ alone, not of works. It is believing in Christ it is believing that you and I are sinners and we need a savior and Jesus died. He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He imputed his righteousness unto believers and our sin was imputed unto Christ and he suffered for our sin with our sin on the cross. And believing in him, we are given eternal life and the Holy Spirit enters into us as a Down payment, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, of our inheritance. But it's more than just a one-time activity. That's justification, being declared righteous. It has a legal aspect, and it has lasting aspect for all of eternity. But I think we ought to regularly preach the gospel beyond that to ourselves. Yes, you're only saved once, and you are held by God. But we preach the gospel regularly because we are sinners regularly. And we are so utterly dependent on God. And so it makes the list, the shoes shod with the gospel of peace, and then the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Now I'm sure that uh, whoever's preaching the shield I don't remember, I assigned it months ago but somebody really good is preaching the shield. I'm, I'm confident of that. They're probably going to say what it looks like and they're going to compare two different types of shields and they're probably going to rightly tell you that it is covered with skin and that before battle you would take the shield and you would dip it, saturate it in water because the enemy has malleoli which are arrows dipped in tar, lit on fire and they're sent at you. And that's the implication of the text. Whoosh! And Satan sends a temptation. Maybe the temptation is you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and the area of your weakness is right there. And you have to decide, do I succumb or do I live a victorious life? Or maybe the area of the weakness is a relationship that maybe God doesn't want for you. You know that. You know what he wants for you. And this isn't it. And you have to say no. What does Christ have to do with Belial? And you move on. Or maybe it's the temptation of pride or possession. It happens all the time. I'm driving down the road and I see a red Jeep bikini top. Four on the four, <laughs> wide mudder tires. And I picture myself <laughs> driving it. And it's going to happen when I get to heaven. can hardly wait. But that's the way Satan acts. I think of James 4.7. He says, submit to the Lord. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I think, what? Why would the highest created fallen being submit to me? Well, he's submitting to God. That's what the text says. Well, resist him. Why would he flee? Because of 1 John 4, four greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If we know Christ, if the spirit of God is within us, when we are living out the armor, when we are memorizing scripture, when we're with the bride of Christ, when we're building accountability into our lives, when we're putting on the armor, Satan gets weak need, and he flees from us. 1 John 5:4 says this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. our faith in Christ. And finally we see the sword, the sword of the spirit verse 17, the Makarion, the short sword. I think of Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is out in the wilderness and he's fasting and praying, he is physically weak as anyone would be after 40 days. And Satan comes and tempts him and offers him the treasures of the world, the accolades of the world, the worship of the world. And each time Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, three times. And I think of this gem in the book of Deuteronomy. It's towards the back end of Deuteronomy. It's when the law of God is being written or excuse me, being read to the people. and Deuteronomy 32, 46 to 47 says this, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. It is no empty word for you, but your very life. What's your very life? Your breath? No. Your family? No. This. This is your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. We all have temptation areas. They're different. Probably different for the person sitting next to you than it is for you. In the areas of temptation, we want to memorize scripture so that we can recite it when suddenly, unexpectedly, or expectedly, we come across that area or areas where we have proven to be weak, and we cite the word of God, and we ask God to do what only God can do. And then we tie it all together. How does the text end? They pray in the spirit. They pray empowered by the spirit that, by the way, is the formula of prayer, isn't it? We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. That is normative prayer. I'm not saying you can't pray to Jesus, but that's not normative. Jesus said what? When you pray, pray like this, our Father, who art in heaven. Normative prayer is always to the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Spirit. And this is encouraging us to pray in the power of the Spirit. When we get up and we put on the armor of God, we are talking to the Father and we're asking the Spirit to guide our words and we conclude in the name of the Son. It says praying at all times in the Spirit with a prayer and supplication. I think of the apostles in Chapter 1, verse 14, it's the beginning of the the New Testament church. And what does it say? They're devoted to prayer. I think of Colossians. We're going there in two months. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Mark 14, 38, Jesus is in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to the disciples, pray lest you fall into temptation. Now think about that. We read about the miracles. They saw them all. And remember what John said at the end of the book. He said, I suppose if all the miracles that Jesus had done were written down, all the volumes on the earth could not contain them. We read about a handful of miracles. They saw and They witnessed them. We read small parts of the sermons of Jesus. There is no sermon of Jesus in the Bible that approximates the length of this sermon. They heard them all. And what did Jesus say? Pray lest you fall into temptation and they fell asleep. And how many of the 12 who had been with Christ saw the miracles, heard the teachings? How many of the 12 did not falter? Zero. And if that's true of them, what's true of us? And how ought you, I, we, to live out our faith? And so over the next six weeks, not counting today, we're gonna talk about the shoes shod with the gospel of peace and the belt of truth. We're gonna talk about the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the shield of faith to put out the flaming darts of the evil one and the helmet of salvation, which I believe is our assurance. And we're gonna tie it all together with lives of prayer and we will not be like the marginal line and we will not be like john sedgwick we will be ready because our battle exists and it's not against flesh and blood it's in the spiritual realms that are all around us let's pray father god uh, It's really a lot easier to talk about these things than to live it out. And so, Father, we with humility admit that we have failed in the past and we want victory in the present and the future. And Father, all of us need all of the armor. We readily admit that. But all of us probably need a couple pieces more than than others, other pieces. We all admit that we have some areas of strength if we know Christ and some areas of weakness because we don't always obey Christ. And so, Father, target those in our lives, reveal those in our hearts. And, Father, may we not only put on the armor of God, but be a part of the bride, build up accountability, Memorize scripture in areas of weakness. Put forth effort and pray. Father, you've given us these things. You've commended them and commanded them to us. Allow us to put them on and live them out for your glory, our benefit. So in the name of Christ we pray, amen.